This episode of Rabbit Hole is brought to you by Iowa State mathematician Alexander Abian's Moonless Earth Theory, a theory that blowing up the moon would end virtually every natural disaster. A moonless Earth, Abian argued, would not wobble, eliminating the seasons and their associated heat waves, snowstorms, and hurricanes. Astronomers have pushed back on Abian's moonless Earth theory, arguing that the Earth's entire nuclear arsenal would do nothing more than crack the moon's crust, that a hail of falling lunar debris would be destructive to all life, and furthermore, that the lack of moon would increase, not decrease, Earth's wobble, aggravating the seasons and their respective natural disasters. We at Rabbit Hole may or may not need the moon, but we need all the help we can get. So please consider becoming a patron at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash rabbit hole podcast. Hello, listeners. We're back. We've awoken in the burren, jumping on carrots, <laughs> ready to come out and dive deeper into the rabbit holes. I'm Pete Davis. I'm here with Sparky Abraham. Hello, Hello Sparky. Hello, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, silly rabbits. We are asking the question, is school good? We're diving deep down the rabbit hole of that question. We've asked people their personal school stories. We've brought on people who've thought about democratic schooling. We've raised up some questions, sub-questions inside of the question of is school good? Does it need to happen in an institutional place? Are hierarchies within schools matter? Should there be masters and apprentices? Any other things uh, to summarize of the past so far, Sparky? No, no, you got it. You got it, man. That was it. Yeah, we talked about being dads and now we dive deeper in a lovely episode to come i was i'm very you know love to all guests but i'm very excited about this episode we're here with the wonderful lovely friend of the podcast daniel walden hello daniel hi pete hi sparky it is it's so wonderful to see you both again it's so wonderful you could see many of his uh, past writings in current affairs you could see it in commonweal all over the place online Dan is a writer and a cultural critic, and he is also academically trained as a classicist. What is a classicist for those who don't know? In English-speaking universities, classics generally refers to the interdisciplinary field of study that deals with the languages, literatures, histories, and cultures of the ancient Mediterranean, concentrating on ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Yeah, knowledge of the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans, and they had a lot of thoughts about education, and the teaching of the classics is a totally debated question that implicates a lot of questions about education, a lot of fights between people thinking we shouldn't teach it at all, people thinking we should only teach Wait, it. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> hold on. I just have a really quick question about that definition. Doesn't Is, is that not Egypt too? Frequently, Yes. A lot of particularly people studying Roman imperial period find themselves working on like Roman Egypt. That actually, my own 
graduate alma mater of the University of Michigan has an enorm- one of the largest collections of papyrus in the Western Hemisphere. And, a, and most of those are coming out of Egypt because it's dry there and papyrus doesn't yeah. rot. Yeah, but I mean, I guess Egypt, Egyptology is its own separate field as well i don't know if that's still a thing that people call it but like i I guess it's funny you describe it as the as the ancient societies of the mediterranean but it just seems like roman greece get a lot of attention in classics and like like older egypt and also maybe like carthage get a little less yeah well that's a that that, that's a whole there's a whole lot of debate uh centering around that and and there's been a resurgence in academic interest in the Carthaginian studies and, t- and sort of attempting to sort of tell the, the history of Carthage's conflicts with Rome from a Carthaginian perspective. I don't know a whole lot about it myself, but I know that it's there. Oh, this is wonderful. Well, I think we're going to touch on this during the conversation, which is like, how do even the disciplines get their definitions and how do people decide what is in and out? And deciding what is in and out is such a question of is school good because school has a certain amount of things that can teach and so there is a lot of uh politics involved in deciding what is in and what is out but we like starting these episodes usually dan with hearing about your own personal journey on if school was good for you so <laughs> i'd love to hear a little bit about you know your educational journey and how that educational journey kind of informs how you approach the question of is school good and uh, what that evokes in you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll say uh, up front that I am the product of sort of the most privileged education that the United States probably has to offer. I was in private school from the time I was in seventh grade, and I was in, you know, first a, a local day school in the Twin Cities, and then uh, found my way to a New England boarding school. From there, uh, a, a short year at a you know a New England liberal arts college before I wound up finishing my undergrad uh, in the Ivy League at Columbia University. In, in retrospect, that was a big part of my formation in terms of how I view education. Columbia is famous or infamous, depending on who you ask, uh, for having a very rigid set of undergraduate requirements. You're all going to read the same books. You're going to take. You're going to take the same classes that are sort of interdisciplinary and and taught by might be taught by people from totally different departments and are taken by everybody. And and there is there's a you know there, there's a canon that's based around a, a you know a European Western canon kind of approach. You know, in my 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 academic. Field. Uh, I'm a classicist, and moreover, I, I'm a classical philologist. So my work is on texts. Um, my my work is on liter- is specifically on literary texts, and the number of those, the size of the literary corpus that you work with as a classicist, is extremely small. There just aren't that many of them left, and th- the ones that we have are often the results of decisions made by people over a thousand years ago about you know, what was worth preserving and what was worth teaching. And so the, the, whole, form, the whole formation of the, of the field, it ended up the formation of the kind of body of literature that I, fo- I found myself most drawn to is uh, the product of many efforts at canonization. And those texts in turn have been, been canonized and then re-canonized in different contexts 
uh, as European education has changed its shape for a very long time. There were sort of some canonical Latin authors that you would read, you know, if you were a, a medieval, if you're a medieval schoolboy, only a schoolboy, not a schoolgirl, learning Latin in the hopes of maybe studying for the priesthood or entering university. Uh, there, there was a body of Latin text you would read. And, you know, there were, like, Terence and Virgil are very well preserved they were, because they were school texts, but you wouldn't have Greek. Greeks don't make it back into the curriculum until the Renaissance. And then this sort of humanistic ideal gets canonized. All that is to say, um, I'm really obsessed with canons. <laughs> and actually, a lot of my teaching has, been, has also been done in, in a, a kind of great books context. And I've taught it both in a, in a kind of standard, you know, like Greeks and Romans in the Bible context. And, and, in a, and at one point, we made an attempt to really reimagine it and sort of reimagine what an educational canon might look like and how, and how we can construct one that students might find more meaningful or more engaging. Uh, so I spent a lot of time thinking about how canons form and what, what their use is. And, and, you know, that's sort of some of what I'm hoping to talk about. That's really great. I mean, I think that touches on, on several points that have run through each of our episodes that we definitely want to discuss with you. But you did fairly quickly, you gave a very brief overview of your structural education experience but you didn't tell us how you feel about it did you have a nice time dan mostly yeah mostly i had i mean i you know i i, like I said I, I was for the first part of first part of my life i was in the public schools i had a great time there we moved houses after after my fifth grade year and i began sixth grade in a new set of public schools it was very different from the one i had left um, that particular district started middle school in sixth grade, and that was also when they sort of began the the practice of cramming large numbers of children into like you know, into concrete blocks with very small windows. And you know, I didn't do very well there. I, I had a, 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 some some pretty severe issues with friends and a lot of mental health problems. And you know, my family had the resources to say this is not going well at all, and to put me into private school after that. I was very fortunate that that, that I could have that, and that you know we were able to sort of purchase smaller class sizes uh, and, and and teachers who knew my name. Yeah, I have a I have a private school public school question since you've seen both sides of it. Yeah, yeah. One of my pet peeves. I'm not an expert on this, but it's it's something that that grinds my gears from what I do know. Is that you know you look at the curriculum, you look at the pedagogy at the fanciest private schools like Exeter and Andover and whatever, like the super wild private school, you know Harvard Westlake or whatever, mm -hmm. and um, that pedagogy is usually progressive pedagogy, uh, progressive in the technical sense, not like politically progressive, but often not politically progressive, but but progressive in the like Deweyan sense of the turn of the century, student focused, project focused, learner centered, um, learner driven. And then you go to the the poorest schools that are kind of getting shock doctrined into kind of being taken over by these billionaire philanthropy run things. And again, I'm I'm doing a broad overview based on some things I've read. I'm not an expert on this. We'll bring an expert on eventually. And you sometimes see, you know, you sometimes get really cool progressive ed programs in the poorest schools, but a lot of times you see drill and kill rote stuff. And then when you press people on this, you say, they say, well, you know, 
they need the drill and kill wrote stuff because they need to learn their numbers and need to learn their writing and the other people have the resources and thus they can actually do the progressive ed thing. But, you know, part of me, the thing that grabs my gears is like, it seems like when you zoom out, the most well-resourced kids are getting the highest quality pedagogy and then we're forcing, because kids are poor, a pedagogy that is not just an alternate pedagogy, it is kind of like shown to be a less successful pedagogy about how people learn and so i'd be interested in in your experience did you have that like progressive pedagogy in your in private schools and and did you see that oh absolutely you know yeah i mean we were at you know i was at you know first like the the most expensive day school in the twin cities area uh which was very progressive and very like very welcoming and they made sure to have like lots they made you know they were you know basically as like like they were as like LGBT inclusive as as anybody was, you know, back in the in the mid two thousands. You know, in retro in retrospect, in retrospect, not great, but like the the standard was the bar was very low, and they were absolutely doing the doing the best that they could. And yeah, very small class sizes, and and lots yeah, lots of yeah, student centered learning, and yeah, you know, yeah, this it was a you know, a lot a lot of emphasis on sort of student like self-actualization as as kind of independent learners and it you know a dedicated college counseling staff who were all very very well connected then i went on from there to to exeter i was at phillips exeter academy where class sizes are physically capped at 14 because you literally cannot fit more people around around a table and don't they have these famous tables they're called harkness tables yes i've heard about yes (laughs) what is the harkness table it began as a as a as a, a gift from Edward Harkness, who gave a lot of money to Yale and Harvard as well. He was a big like educational philanthropist, and he basically gave, I think it was like ten million dollars, and in like the in like the thirties, uh, just unthinkable money, gave him like ten million dollars and said, you know, I want you to come up with an educational revolution. I want you to, to come up with something really new, and you know, it was a. You know, back then, as most schools were, classes were like in lecture halls, and you would, you know, there would be a lot of people in the lecture hall, and you, you would sort of, you would address the teacher as just a sir, and you get addressed by last name, and, and it, you know, I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was a lot like sort of the grimmest vision of a 1L class, right? You know, you just sort of get called on, and you had no choice. And they took the money, and they were like, all right, we're going to make every class into a discussion center on a table and we're going to make it like totally student driven with so, and so yeah they designed these tables i mean the basic architectural feature is that if one you can always see everybody else and two there are little slides in the table that you can pull out if, if you need to like sit and take an exam or something uh so that you pull up a slide and everyone turns to the side and then you're you can only see the back of the, of the person next to you because of, you know you don't want people you know if you haven't designed a collaborative exam, and then you don't want people uh, taking an exam cram- crammed up at a table where they can all see each other. It's a very elegant version of like those big cardboard like fold out things they used to g- give to like set around oh, yeah. yourself at your desk or whatever. Right. This, oh, is, yeah, this sure. is Harkness's quote. He said, what I have in mind is a classroom where students could sit around a table with a teacher who would talk with them and instruct them by sort of a tutorial or conference method where each student would feel encouraged to speak up. This table would be a real revolution in methods. It's I just like it's that it's about a table, right? 
<laughs> oh, oh, no, no, for sure. And and like you know, and it, you know, and and the school took that pedagogy extremely seriously. I remember in my in like in my math class, the first thing that would happen would be like you know we'd ha- we'd have problems from the homework, and we'd we'd arrive at class, and the teacher would say like, all right, put them up, and we would all go to the board and pick a problem, either one that we were one that we were quite sure on, or one that we had like had questions about. And we'd sort of, we'd, you know, put up our, our solution on the board and the class would go around and everybody would be, would be sort of asking about and criticizing everybody else's work. And so it's a, it's sort of, a, it, it's a very like student driven kind of thing. The joke often goes that like, you know, the, the ideal, a teacher's ideal in, in, in one of those classrooms is to fall asleep in their own class because they would, because they would be superfluous. Wow. And I, you know, I, I, I loved it. I thrived in that environment. And, you know, and also, and I think, you know, re- relating to sort of your point about ha- sort of progressive environments in general, I mean, like, I was able to be, to be you know, to sort of fully come out, like, as, as, a, as a young gay man at board, only, like, at boarding school. Like, it was because it was, like, a place that was where we were, like, supervised, but also sort of safe from our parents. And, you know, we, we people could sort of try on versions of themselves with a certain kind of freedom. It's like an early taste of what college, of what like freshman year in college is for so many people. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and all this is, exists because there's, you know, an environment of trust that people are given. Students are largely, you know, you're sort of, by, and by the time you're like a junior or a senior, you know, you're sort of largely trusted to manage your own affairs and manage your own studying. And yeah, right. It's, it's, it's it, in, in a lot of ways, you know, those schools that cost a gazillion dollars a year, to attend are are this kind of sort of progressive educational paradise where everybody's yeah everybody's self-actualizing everybody's sort of learning the things that they want to and it's very student-centered so my last year my 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 my, my last year there my, my last term there that, you know we, that we had a there was like a prescribed english sequence for the whole time until you hit senior last term of the senior year when there was this huge range of electives and I just took this one where like, just all we did the whole term, we just read Moby Dick. Like that, the, the, the whole term was yeah. just going through closely and slowly through Moby Dick. And it was awesome. It was, uh, and this, and, you know, this guy, this teacher had been teaching Moby Dick for like 30 years. And, and I think people, you know, people hear this and they're like, you know, this, this type of education is available to a very small subset of folks. But, and like we could roll our eyes and say, Oh gosh, that's so annoying. That's not real the real world. But kind of our socialist, you know, idealism we need to say is that the goal is to take the elements of this that the rich people are paid good money for. They think, you know, it's like how those like rise and grind Instagram accounts are always like, what are the ways the rich people spend their mornings <laughs> right. or whatever? It's like it's like we want our schools to be like what the rich people are paying for. We gotta get that for everyone. And and it doesn't necessarily need to mean like we gotta send everyone to boarding school, but there are elements of this, like what is the pedagogy happening there? Summer camp, you know, like a YMCA summer camp with loving counselors can get a lot of that, like taking you away from your family for a bit to have a loving alternative space. That can probably do that a little bit cheaper than, you know, Exeter can. And, you know, the student empowerment aspect of this, too. And I know there's complications, which is like a social foundation of this is that everyone was well-resourced and isn't bringing like some of the problems of that come with not being well-resourced to this environment. And when you have those problems, that means the school has to spend a lot more money on all that elements. But 
with that in mind, you can also add all these other good things that are there, such as the Harkness tables. <laughs> yeah, or, or and 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 actually, yeah, and and you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't also say that, like, like not everybody was thriving at Exeter. Like that's very, like that's very clear. Like it worked well for a certain kind of student, for someone who was extremely sort of internally driven, for someone who took like low marks as like a motivational setback, and who didn't have maybe have an issue with sort of taking that as sort of a. For someone who's able to work within a grade, you know, a grading system that was actually was still pretty, pretty much a standard grading system, you know, I mean, we all know, like, a lot of people are actually like harmed by the by the by the grading practices that we have. And for people who, who are who were that way, like, they would often have a lot of problems, you know, it, the, 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 and the school didn't treat them, I, I, I think, didn't treat them properly. You know, it, it was, it was, it, you, you get a lot of you know, you get to paper over a lot of things when you get to select your own student body. Yeah, I mean, that's true. It also, what you're saying reminds me of the conversation we had with Derek Gottlieb about the accountability measures and the way that institutions will sort of wrap and warp themselves around whatever the measure that you are going to use to judge them is. And, you know, obviously Exeter is judged on very different accountability metrics than you know, many public schools, I assume that you guys weren't doing like a ton of standardized testing and that kind of thing. People basically didn't even take AP exams because they took place at the same time as school finals. And it, there was, it was like, well, everyone was like, just there's no point in taking them unless you're getting college credit because our exams are harder. One thing that I think is interesting about that kind of institution too, is I assume a lot of the accountability such as it is is about access to the hyper prestigious colleges. Yep. And so yep. To, to a large extent, what education is going to look like at Exeter is somewhat determined by Harvard. Yeah. To, to, yeah. To a large extent. I mean, I mean, I mean by Harvard I, admission officers a and whatever, and whatever they're yes. bringing to their jobs <laughs> and donors probably. <laughs> right. And, and, and actually that, I mean, like Exeter started life as a feeder school for Harvard. Uh, they they still have identical school colors, and I mean I think when I when I was there out of a class of about three sixty or so, about I think forty kids got into Harvard. I mean the the, the, num the numbers are just out are insane. It's probably a little more diverse now, but um, it, yeah. It, well, I think in some way I would I would actually say in some ways that I think that a lot of a lot of, it's a lot of that is I think uh, I think the pressure actually I think probably goes the other way. Because it's the, the, the because the college and the college admissions offices, elite college admissions offices, are making decisions usually reactively. I mean, they're 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 highly reactive in um, institutions. They're, they're basically reacting to usually, honestly, mostly culture war stuff. I mean, you know, they they haven't fundamentally changed. They haven't made any really, really fundamental changes to their modes of evaluation, you know, since they instituted holistic admissions in the '50s to keep out Jews. Yeah. They, the 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 question of who is benefited and who is and who is disadvantaged by holistic admissions, you know, those particulars obviously have changed. Um, but the basic approach is is still is identical, uh, which is like, yeah, yeah, well-rounded class and like. And I mean, and look, like there are assumptions undergirding holistic admissions that I completely agree with. And the number one, the number one assumption that I agree with is that college isn't a reward. 
college admission is not a like a prize that goes to the bestest little boy or whatever. The whole basis of affirmative action is, in fact, that college is not a prize. People are admitted based on potential for whatever. It's a statement that we think this person would do well and would would contribute to our community in ways that we would like that we that we think are good. You know, a lot of us from this community that this podcast merged out of, it's you know we're all on team randomization, um, you know, random admissions. But you know, if not random admissions. And maybe, you know, concurrently with random admissions and the proliferation of more universities in more ways, you know, it's it's universities should have a mission. You know, this is another thought. Universities should have a mission statement about what they're trying to do, you know, and then they should choose their classes based on that mission statement. So if the mission statement is and this is what state universities, this is one of America's great legacies, like one of the good things we've done with a lot of complexity, but like. You know, these state universities that had goals of developing the regions that they were in, you know, like we have this cool farming opportunity here. We have this cool industry here. We have this, um, you know, we want Michigan to have, uh, you know, to have us, you know, a citadel of thought or something for Michigan or something. And um, it's it's like the envy of the world, this university system. And And so their mission should be like, what advances that mission in the public interest of the people we're trying to serve or sectors or disciplines or whatever? not you know our job is to to run an nfl draft of every, of every person based on some random objective criteria allegedly objective criteria no absolutely and and i well and i i would actually like i think not construct not only their classes but i think but but their but their curriculum along along those lines i mean and i think this this goes toward you know so like one of the things that attracted me very profoundly to Columbia, the reason I ended up there for my undergrad was because they had a very clear vision of what a, a university education looks like, and and and, and at the time, to- and at the time, it was one that I very much agreed with. And it seemed to me, and I, 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 and this I remain convinced of, that most colleges don't have a vision of what education is. They don't have a clear vision of like the kinds of people they would like to be sending out into the world. There's a, a small number of schools that have some kind of clear vision. I, th- I, I like I like to you know, obviously this is this is grotesque Ivy centrism, but but these are the these are the two most famous schools that do this. So I, I outline these sort of as the the full Columbia approach and the full Brown approach because Brown, of course, infamously has no like core degree requirements whatsoever. You you get to do whatever you want, and I think there's a lot to be said for that as well. You know, when I talk about sort of can't can't ed- use of educational canons in part in part what I'm talking about is a community's vision and expression of like what they think is important for somebody to know what they think is important for what, what, what kind of formation is appropriate for somebody to have. I, you know, the, the word formation, I think b- perhaps betrays my Catholic drop. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. And, speci- and specifically the, the amount, the amount that I owe to Jesuits. One of the most famous like educational documents and documents in the history of European education is is the old Jesuit Ratio Studiorum, a you know a comprehensive plan of studies for for Jesuit schools, and it, that covers basically everything, uh, in, in, including leisure. By the way, 
there was a time to not be working. There was a, there was a time when when people didn't need to be studying and when when they should when they should maybe like go outside and get some exercise and some fresh air and whatever. But it it's, it, it it relates to a, a vision of what does this community value? And this is why I say my, my contention that perhaps the uh, perhaps a, uh, perhaps a hot contention. I think I can defend it though, is that. The formation of educational canons, I think, is not something you can escape. They're inevitable. We're forming canons all the time. You know, any any syllabus that you draw up is an exercise in canon formation. You're saying, you know, you're saying this is what I, as an expert, someone who's worked in this area for a while, this is what I think would be important to look at uh, if you're coming to this for the first time. Uh, This is where I would start. And I think all communities develop canons. They develop ideas of what a you know. What an educated person looks like, and what things that what what things that, what things they've read. My question is: Are those canons? Are they informal, or are they out in the open? Even at a univer, you know, a standard American uni- uh, university, where it's like, okay, our undergraduate curriculum is you have these distribution requirements in these seven different areas, and you have to, you have to take you have to take so many credit hours, and here's a list of classes you can take, and they may be very different, but we've all we've designated them they, that they can all do this. You know, even even places like that where there's no like, there's no real effort, there's no real real explicit effort at canon formation. Students are always gonna students are gonna talk. They're, they're gonna say like, oh, this class, like this English class with this one like old long serving professor is really awesome. And and you know, it's you know, you you like you really haven't gone to this school until you've taken like that class. You know, those, those places still develop legendary teachers, legendary courses that ever where that that get talked about long after people have graduated like yeah oh yeah you know that 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 like you're saying a really profound thing here and i just want to draw this out which is you're saying there is a can't you can't be neutral on a moving train what would be the canon form of this it's like you you can't not have an opinion on the canon on a canon full world or something um which is like there will be a it's like it's it's which is like a classic radical point about all things which is like you know, if you do not surface the, you know, the ideology of the moment, there's no such thing as no ideology. There is an ideology of the moment. We should surface it through critical writing and then debate alternatives to it, because if not, it's just there underneath the surface, no matter what. And so you're saying in education, there is a canon. So, you know, in these supposedly neutral places that don't have a canon, you know, let's be real about the concrete thing. It's usually like, reading a bunch of pop psych and like pop econ books or something. It's like, everyone's going to read, you know, this isn't the thing anymore, right. but like 10 years ago, everyone would like the canon was read the world is flat by Thomas Friedman or something. If you don't affirmatively as a moral institution with the mission statement, say, I've got something else I think you should read. And um, I have a Unger thing on this, which uh, is oh, really? annoying. Uh, dry, here's the Unger drop. against our belittlement, by the alliance between chance and society, we cease to be little. We become great, unshaken, unsubdued, unterrified. Our struggle, which is the condition of greatness, would also be the cause of our perversion, were it not transformed by love. Unger has stated, we too often choose neutrality when we should choose openness as our as our alternative so he says okay no one likes a closed canon and so we're like oh closed canon 
and this is bad, so we shouldn't have a canon. Would he? That's neutrality. And he said, openness is let's have a thing, let's surface and have a thing, and then let's be open to changing it <laughs> democratically, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And so um, that's is that what you're saying, Dan? Basically, yeah. I mean, I think you know. I mean, I, I still have a huge problem with a lot of institutions that that have that that ex- that have an explicit educational canon. And my biggest problem with basically all of them is that they're not democratically accountable in, in any real way, right? They're they're not they're uh, you know or, or if they are, they're responding basically to the only maybe to the concerns of their faculty, but they're not really responding to the concerns of their students, not in any way that's that, that with teeth, right? And I you know and I think that's not acceptable. I mean I, th- I think you know students are member you know in 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 the oldest sense you know what is a, a university the word university just means community. Uh, the students are part of the community, uh, and and in that sense, they you know they deserve a say in in the extend the ongoing, never ending critical examination and reexamination of what this community values, in, in, in what this community thinks students should learn. But yeah, but I, right, I think putting that on the surface, and then moreover, I think a proliferation of differing canons uh, of, that that are outgrowths of different academic communities is something to, to be much desired. I taught in the Great Books program at the, at the University of Michigan for four years, well, for, for, for four semesters. It was always in the fall semester. This is like an old, this is a, sort of an old institution of like the, the, the University Honors College. Uh, and it was founded on, on like the Columbia model of like Western canon uh, and, 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 and whatnot. And the fir- my first two years in it, teaching it, teaching in it, uh, were sort of in that vein. It was a lot of a lot of Greek tragedies, the Iliad and the Odysseys, uh, some some books of, of, of the of the of the Hebrew Bible, and some some like some Roman epic and comedy and things like that. And then for the third year, the the professor it was a new professor teaching, it, and she she wanted to say, you know what, we got to change this up. You know, we've been sort of coasting on the old model for a while, and and it, this is just sort of basically like a vestige of the way we used to do things. So we, we should rethink this in a in a in a sort of dynamic way. She was like, why you know why restrict it only to European literature? There is so much, and without even ditching the idea, without ditching the idea of like a canonical piece of literature, you know, there are acknowledged like masterpieces and and sort of foundational books of many different many different cultural groups around the world that deserve it. Um, and, you know, sort of put that together. So they put, like, the Mahabharata in, di- in dialogue with, with the Iliad, in part, you know, the, in part because, you know, there's probably a, 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 a linguistic genetic relationship between those two works uh, at some point. And also, like, these are both books about, like, how does, you know, how, how, how does a... How does some? How does someone with these kind of like old kind of warrior values act in a context that where like civilization is growing up and and that like might not be the way to do things anymore? Or you know, we they all remember we also put together uh, Plato's Republic and the Confucian Analects, really highlighting something that both of them both of them take very seriously, which is the idea that like an authentic self is is, is a self that we make. It's not something we dig through. And like dis- we we don't like dig through our education or identity to find authenticity. Authenticity is a habit. It's a it, it's it, it's it's becoming 
what we aspire to become. And that was really rewarding and sort of, I mean, was a, you know, really hammered home in a, in a practical way, something that I had sort of felt intellectually, you know, that, that a proliferation of canons is extremely good and, and, and because it's a way of expressing a diversity of communal values, a, 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 diver, a diversity of pictures of what the good life looks like. Yes. Okay. Grant, okay. Granted. <laughs> okay. Okay. But, so, I think that this relates in some ways to some of the discussions that we've had about, you know, what are the various purposes and cross-purposes of education? And we've had those mostly in the context of American education, a history of American education, which is relatively young. And we've talked a lot about this sort of interplay between the community benefits of education versus the individual benefits of education. Education is a community project, which can carry both, you know, is it necessary for democracy, whatever. And I think like one of the things that's really appealing to me about the idea of the canon and about your argument is the sort of the material over which to have shared exchanges, right? Like you and I have stories and references and metaphors in common that makes our existing in a community together smoother. And that's just culture, right? Like that happens anyway. But a lot of what we do in education is facilitating that. And a lot of the way that we facilitate that is through the canon. That, of course, is true now. And it's also true into the past and into the future, right? And so like one of the things that you said, I think I think this was before we started recording. You know, you have said that in a lot of ways, a canon is necessary. It's inevitable. I think you might have also said that a hierarchy is, is in some sense inevitable. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what how, how the idea of a hierarchy in education relates to the canon and whether there is any space here. I mean, you know, obviously, like you could have a, a very democratic system, like students could choose their own reading, you could create your own internal culture, whatever. But I expect there's probably some trade-off there in terms of the value of the shared canon with the past, with other people, whatever. There's probably some value to something imposed from the top. Um, and how do you balance those in, in your view? I don't, I don't have a, a, a terribly sort of individualist view of education in general. You know, I, I see it as a process of enculturation, as, you know, as an experience. Every, every society has sort of a vision of the good, has a vision of, you know, of, of what growing into the fullness of life looks like. And, and so, and so, and I think, you know, this, uh, this is what I think is, this is why I would say that the process of canon formation is inevitable. And, you know, in terms of, in terms of what we might call hierarchy, education is sort of by nature. It's a, it's a dialogue with the past. And it's also, and, and from the perspective of, of someone, of, of an instructor, it's a dialogue with the future, right? It's, there is always, an, there is always an imbalance between, the person who wants to know something and the person who knows some elements of what somebody else wants to know. Uh, and that's, that's not a, that's not something you can really escape. You know, and it, it's this, I mean, it's the source of, it's the source of what, of what Plato calls like philosophical eras. It, you know, this, this sort of relationship of fascination 
that arises out of the desire for knowledge and out, out of out of the, the instinct to seek truth. Yeah, I, just just quickly, I think the relationship that you're talking about came through in our martial arts episode in that if you're going to go learn martial arts from somebody, that person can kick your ass and it wouldn't make sense to do it otherwise. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, and well, and again, I think, I think martial arts is actually a really apt comparison here it, because it's, you know, in certain in certain like visions of education that have a kind of very high view of, of, of the canon and the classics or whatever, they would, you know, they would say they would they would make a very explicit martial arts comparison and say, you know, it is precisely by sort of doing the movement in the way that's been passed down and by sort of conforming yourself to that, that you can acquire organic spontaneity and that you can finally achieve a state where, you, where, 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 where this is organic and, cre- and becomes creative. I think there's a lot to that in the sense that, you know, human beings are, you know, you know there, there's no such thing as an as, as there's no such thing as the individual. The abstract individual is, is, is a fiction of like early, early modern British liberalism. And we should, we should destroy it. <laughs> late in the pod, late in the pod to make statements like this. It's great. It's true though. We all know it's true. Yeah. But, but I think you know, part of, part of what it means to grow into the fullness of human life is to grow into communal life. The dialogue, that, that dialogue between past and future on either end is always is always taking place and is part of sort of the necessary condition of growing into someone who can exercise independence, uh, some, 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 someone who has their own judgments uh, and can pronounce them. We can ask a lot of questions of the, about the precise form that that dialogue should take. You know, I'm... Again, I I'm not against the idea of a of a sort of radically student-driven kind of curriculum because again, that is that's its own kind of tradition. Um, that's its own expression of what a community values. You know, that's another kind of canon, I would say. Uh, and I, you know, and and and, and there is room for a, there, I think there's room for a lot of those. Perhaps even you know that kind of proliferation, I think, maybe might enable better enable the kind of choice that someone who's like an advocate of radically student-driven education wants if there is a huge plurality of concrete choices available then someone can say you know oh i want to make the choice to you know in the way that i did you know, i can say i say you know i want to make the choice to subject myself to this kind of curriculum and i want to enter into this into this relationship with the past and perhaps with my instructors where, 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 where there is some, there is like an agreed upon set of roles where somebody is, where somebody is like doing the teaching and where they exercise some measure of authority uh, in the classroom. I think that, I think that if, that, that a proliferation of, of schools, I think has the ability to make that more just than it often is in school, in in contemporary schools where there is no other option. And and I think part of the point to be, it doesn't, it doesn't solve the problems with that, but nothing does because actually that just takes the hard work of democracy, right? Right. Fundamentally, it involves you know a responsibility on the particularly on the part of older and more informed members of the community, a responsibility of openness, right? A responsibility of openness to one's to, you know, to, to one's pupils. You know, always, and you know, in, in, in a, you know, in a, in a diff- in a radical and difficult way, both one on one, in terms of addressing the concrete concerns that they might have, and sort of as a as a whole, in terms of you know, 
you know, okay, you know, our student body is discontent with something, with some of the, with some something in, 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 in what we teach or how we teach or how the community is run. And we have a responsibility to be open to that. Okay. So we're, we're coming up on time, although we're going to have to have you back for another episode. That's just about what was the arrows of philosophy. That sounded very interesting and relevant, but Here's our, here's our last question, and I'm going to try, I'm going to try to summarize the answers of all the previous guests in a pithy, but not, but hopefully not totally inaccurate way. Okay. The question is, Daniel Walden, what does your ideal school look like? And just to go back through Jack Schneider, more like kindergarten, Derek Gottlieb embedded in the broader community, democracy and dependent on whatever they want. Who is next? Uh, Sam from Southpaw involves uh, the sort of a a connection with the ecstatic through both rote and free play. Bertrand Cooper uh, said that it takes uh, pedagogy and, and research into pedagogy and learning more seriously. So Dan, what in, in your utopia, what, what, what are we looking at in terms of school? What, what is the institution and and what does the practice look like? I think in some ways, In some ways, it looks like a return to, you know, the, 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 the roots of European schooling and their outgrowth out of monasteries. I think it looks love, like... A, love this answer already. I think it looks like a community where different people might have different roles to play, perhaps in instruction or whatever, but also the, res, the, 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 the physical responsibility for the upkeep of the community and the necessary, and the, and the necessary work that goes on is something that, that everybody shares. I mean, I, I think that's... One of the things that is that has been very wrong with American education for a long time is, you know, like we say, oh, this is, oh, 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 we can give people scholarships to these expensive schools, but also, but also, like they're gonna like wait tables in the dining hall uh, as a condition of this. I think that's unacceptable. I think, and you know, I, th- I think, I think you make the condition that anybody who anybody who attends something like who attends is gonna put in shifts waiting tables, is gonna put in shifts washing dishes, is gonna put in. Is going to everybody? Everybody contributes in, in you know in this, in in some way or maybe in all the same ways eventually to uh, the up the necessary work that that's required for this to, for this for this community to continue functioning. I think that kind of investment and that kind of taking account of the reality that like there is always physical maintenance work to be done in our lives, in addition to contemplative and intellectual work. And I think a more realistic grasp of that balance is not a panacea, but I think would be a, a more moral and in many ways a much more realistic place to, 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 to get an education. The, the radically egalitarian co-op model reflecting the realities of what life is actually like in the world. Yeah, pretty much. I love that, Dan. Thank you, Dan Walden. People should Google your name and read articles that you write. They should follow you on Twitter. Do you have anything you want to plug? They should commission me to write things, <laughs> preferably <laughs> yes. with large budgets. <laughs> large budget magazines out there. Commission Dan. He's brilliant. He's learned. We love him. Thank you, Dan, for coming on Deep Down the Rabbit Hole. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Rabbit Hole Podcast is produced by Dan Thorne. Theme music is by Danny Bradley. If you enjoyed this episode of Rabbit Hole, please, please support us at patreon.com slash rabbithole Help us keep all of our episodes open to everyone. We can't do it without you. If you didn't enjoy this episode of Rabbit Hole, try another episode. 
maybe we had an off day.